In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. If you're looking for a good parable of patience, you need not look much further than Roald Dahl's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I know those of you, perhaps you've read the book or seen the play or the movie, if you know it, you probably think of yourself, I know we all like to think of ourselves as Charlie, the kind, gracious, ever-patient protagonist who against all odds wins a tour of the mysterious chocolate factory. We want to be Charlie, but all too often we are a little bit closer to Veruca. <laughs> right, Veruca Salt, that is, who gets everything she wants, when she wants it, and when she doesn't get it, she throws a mighty temper tantrum so that everyone around her can know that she is upset and so that her wealthy father can quickly surround her with servants and whatever goods helps to assuage her discomfort. When you are Veruca Salt, there is simply no need for this thing called patience. Patience is for somebody or it's for other people. It's for people who don't have the power or the money to just make things break your way whenever you want it. Of course, at the chocolate factory, eventually good wins out and everybody gets their appropriate comeuppance, and Charlie's purity of spirit rises to the fore. But the rest of us tend to live in a world where our inner Veruca is generally nurtured and rewarded. In so many ways, we hear this. Don't, don't wait. Be patient. You should be able to get this right now. And if you're upset, make sure everybody else knows it. Who wants to wait? Waiting is an unpleasant part of life. And Veruca thought that she could just skip right past that. Now, I'm tough on her, but I, I, don't, I don't like waiting either. I don't like waiting in line. I don't like waiting for an answer. I don't even like waiting for espresso to boil on the stovetop. You know, first world problems, I realize that. But, but it is pretty good when it finally is ready. When, when we're forced to wait, uh, our timeline is no longer our own. We are no longer in control and we can get irritable and we can lose our perspective and we can begin to doubt ourselves. And, and when that person we really need to hear back from finally gives us a call back, we, after all this waiting, we may not actually be that kind and gracious person that we think we're supposed to be. This is not good news that's going to make you happy you got out of bed and came to church. But part of life and part of faith means building up some patience muscles so that we don't behave like Veruca Salt every time we're feeling a little bit unfulfilled. Waiting is a part of life. And patience is a part of life. But what about those things that are a lot more consequential than tea that is brewing on top of the stove? Waiting for a roof repair while winter is coming, that's not such a great thing. 
Waiting for a loved one's illness to resolve itself isn't a a great plan when something's getting worse and doctors are ready and willing to do something about it. Waiting on racism or sexism or homophobia to just work itself out only enables it further. Last week, Greater Cleveland Congregations spoke out, had an action against the practice of youth bind-over, which is what happens when teenagers accused of significant crimes are bound over to the adult criminal justice system. This practice took flight in the 90s following the deeply false rhetoric of, quote, super predator youth whose crimes surely merited adult punishment. Yet youth are not adults. Their their brains are not fully formed. I know we all feel like none of our brains are fully formed, but I'm talking physiologically. You know what I mean. And this denied them access to the rehabilitative support of the juvenile justice system that acknowledged that someone who may have done something at age 16 needs a different kind of care and treatment and therapy than someone who is 25 or 30. And you know, though this does nothing to reduce crime, youth who are bound over as adults are five times more likely to be sexually assaulted in prison and eight times more likely to take their own lives while there. And oh, by the way, 99% of youth in Cuyahoga County who are bound over are black. And Cuyahoga has done this in recent years more than the next five Ohio counties combined. We simply cannot wait. We simply cannot be patient While some youth endure a separate and harsher criminal justice system than others with outcomes for them and for the whole community that are catastrophic. This is not a place for patience. So what then do we do when we're told to be patient? We need to sit with what James was talking about when he counseled patience as a core part of faith. We need to sit with this because, A, we stink at patience. I'm sure of it. I know I do. And, B, there are some things in this world that are urgent and cannot wait and require action rather than passive acceptance. What, in the midst of all this, does it mean to wait? Waiting is a part of life, but waiting is also a part of faith. We learn to wait patiently through times of wilderness and doubt, not because we are powerless, not because we are simply resigned to the world as it is, so let's just wait, but rather we wait precisely because we have a vision for the fulfillment of God's promises. We learn what it means to work while we wait because we refuse to enable injustice through passivity. We learn that patient waiting can actually change us. It can actually turn us from Veruca into Charlie, into faithful people who are gentler and kinder 
and more loving. Which is exactly what this world needs and which I think is exactly the gift that God sends us to be in a broken world. James tells the earliest Christians to wait patiently. Now, there is some hidden wisdom in this word if we look a little bit more carefully. The Greek word for patience here uh, isn't just sort of just waited out. It actually, the word is macrothymia, which is, it's like the suffering of a long-suffering judge. A judge who knows a little bit about the ways of the world, but also who has a sense of the long game. A judge who knows that in the world, oppression by the powerful, it will always happen. We know this. But that tends to result in internal divisions among those who are under stress, among those who are oppressed. But then that then leads to grumbling. That's why James says patience means doing a little less grumbling with one another. Because that grumbling leads to infighting, which then leads to the perpetuation of the exact same system. Nothing changes, and we haven't actually changed the structure. So this is a, this is a deeply pastoral presence that James is talking about. One that says, love one another first and draw strength and resilience from your faith and from one another's love as the Holy Spirit brings about something that is new. Be patient. But you know, patience, not all patience is created equal. And I actually think that the quality of patience depends a good bit on what it is you think you're being patient for. What, it is, what exactly is it that we're waiting on here? If we're waiting for a fiery judgment or, or maybe an insurrection that breaks our way, then being patient means something different. It means lying in wait for the chance to strike. But if what we're waiting for is something else, if what we're waiting for is the fulfillment of God's promised reign of love, if what we're waiting for is that moment when humanity finally sees and knows itself in itself the image of God and begins to be changed by that and begins to change the world from that, if that's what we're waiting on, then patience is going to be something just a little bit different. I think that kind of patience actually sees more urgently the need for compassion and forgiveness and justice. I think that patience also draws strength from those clear signs of grace that are already among us and already all around us. And I think you can see, we see that difference in in what patience can be depending on what it is that we're waiting for. We actually see that today in John the Baptist. Because in the passage today, John actually loses his patience. Did you notice that? 
Now, now I think, we might think of John as an impatient guy, right? He's always kind of calling for the end of something, and he gets himself in prison because he couldn't control his tongue. Fine. But, you know, I would say someone who goes out into the wilderness to await the, the, the coming of someone who is promised is actually very patient. And then someone who gets put in jail has to survive that. That calls for a whole different patience. But then something happens and John today reaches that point where he actually begins to doubt. Right? He could handle the wilderness fine. He could actually handle prison fine. But then it, he hits his limits when Jesus' word reaches him that the way that Jesus is behaving doesn't go according to plan. Because John had pointed out that this great reversal that Jesus was bringing, he was thinking that it was going to be something fiery and revolutionary and that Jesus was going to be prophet 2.0 who puts everybody in their place. Instead, John, sitting in this prison cell, hears that Jesus is going around offering compassion and healing and forgiveness. And even, and this must have really burned from a prison cell, sitting down to dinner with sinners and tax collectors and Pharisees. And John begins to think, have I put my whole, have I all my chips on something that, that isn't right? Is this even the person that I've been prophesying will be coming? And besides that, what kind of Messiah leaves the forerunner in prison? John the Baptist had begun to doubt. And I want you to hear that. Because have you ever doubted? I know I have. And I want you to hear that because that is okay. That says something about the wilderness. The wilderness isn't just some place where we go and it, and it's, and it has a, a sandy, uh, uh, a minimalist aesthetic where we can really be in touch with our feelings, uh, but never to doubt and never have a moment where we've completely lost control of things because that's actually what the wilderness is. The wilderness is precisely where the crisis overwhelms our reserves. It's where we run out of answers or the answers that we have simply don't make sense anymore. And John, who had survived the wilderness, who had survived prison, suddenly reaches that moment where he doubts. And, and I think that's the moment where the wilderness became most real for him. After all his time away out in the wilderness, it was the moment that he thought he might have bet wrong on Jesus that he hit the rocks. And patience looks a little different when our ship has shattered on the rocks of an unforgiving shoreline. But by the grace of God, we wash ashore and we pick up and we begin to walk again. But we are not the same person who was on that ship. John sends word to Jesus. Are you, in fact, the one who we've been promised? And Jesus says, be patient. 
Not patient while Jesus plays the long game. Not patient while Jesus makes all the right moves, but rather patient because the inbreaking of compassion and liberation and love has already begun. That's not waiting for something to happen. That's waiting while something happens. Waiting as the Spirit catches them all up in something that is new and unfolding with the animating Spirit of God. It means being patient. It means waiting. But waiting for something that is already happening all around him. Waiting is a part of life. But that also means that the wilderness is a part of life too. Luke Powery reminds us that it's an unavoidable part of the Christian journey. And when we go there, which we inevitably will, we do not come out unchanged. It is there in the wilderness that we learn not only to survive, but to develop the muscles of a deeply faithful patience that allows us to grow even as we work for the coming of the eternal. We wait. We wait patiently through wilderness and doubt, not because we are powerless, not because we are resigned, but because we have seen and tasted the promises of God. Amen.